Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Our memories are shaky constructs. We remember things wrong or forget things altogether. But I found, and other people seem to agree with this, that if you want to start digging through your brain to recover things that have gone missing, just start talking. And the more you talk, the more that will come back. And if you have a group of people with a shared history and they start talking, it's amazing what comes flooding back. It can be cathartic, therapeutic, nostalgic, and just plain fun. Hold that thought. The longer a band exists, the more hazy the memories become. Maybe it's just age. Maybe it's because drugs and alcohol were involved. Maybe some members die taking their stories with them. In far too many instances, we're forced to piece together a group's stories from second- and third-hand accounts, friends and associates, press coverage from back in the day, and various other imperfect recollections told either in person or documented online. But hey, it's better than nothing, right? But what if you could get a band with a billion of these stories together in a studio and get them to talk things out? What memories and feelings will emerge then? This is exactly what I did with the Headstones. Hugh Dillon, bass player Tim White, and guitarist Trent Carr. They were all in the same place, talking about, well, how they got there. This is the Headstones, in their own words, part two. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. I lost the system. The Headstones and Caught in a Loop from their 2019 album, People Skills. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and I deliberately chose that song to lead off part two of this In Their Own Words program, because we left things off in the middle 90s when the Headstones were really, well, caught in a loop, and it was a bad one. You want dark rock and roll stories? Here we go. Do you remember any more really scary incidents? I mean, I'm... Oh, thousands of them. Driving. <laughs> Tons. Yeah, like we, some of them we just don't want to get into because you could, you know, it's just so, it's shocking. It's shocking, you know. And this is very Frankie Venom territory. <laughs> well, Frankie and I, when we first started playing with Teenage Head, Frankie and I were like brothers. Frankie, because I remember our crew and, and Trent, who has red hair, so it was always funny because Gord Lewis did, and them watching me and Frank... And there was a van going through. Uh, remember, we were playing that place in Kingston, like a, 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 a an outdoor. We were playing some outdoor oh. festival, and Frank and I 
like bumper hitching in the wintertime when you're kids, you grab the back of a bus and you put your feet, your heels down and you're going through the snow. So that's where how I grew up. It was like before um, Jackass was invented, we were playing Jackass. <laughs> yeah. And so Frankie and I are on the back of a, a van and he's like, right, let's see how far you can go. And so I thought, I'm going to, I'm going to hold on to this thing. So my feet slip out, Frank's feet slip out, and we're both being dragged across this. <laughs> I think you were holding a beer, actually. Yeah. Mind. So yeah, it looked yeah. hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I still got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Trent and I would go over to Frank's place, and we'd hang out. And so, you know, you um, and Gord Lewis was always a, a, such a, a huge um, fan that gave us confidence because he was like you guys can do it we'd sat in a hotel room with Gordon oh that was like one of those crazy moments because I grew up idolizing Teenage it's one of the first records I bought that was a rock record and I learned to play guitar from that first from Frantic City mm. and playing the solo on Wild One then I'm sitting there in a hotel room with Gord playing that guitar from that album cover. <laughs> oh my God, I'm playing that so mm -hmm. I forget. He's hanging out with Frankie at the same time. It was hilarious. So it was like one of those. And, and yeah. they loved the band. They loved us. And that was a real. Yeah, they're always big supporters. You know, because we trans. The hip gave us the nod and said, we're going to give you some gigs, but you know, you guys are unpredictable. And, uh, but you're on your way and you're good. But it was teenage said it went. You're really good. <laughs> <laughs> when when did things get so out of control that you realized that something had to change? Uh, oh, when something had to change? Yeah. When I tried to clean up, I did clean up, and then by the time we did Oracle for Hi-Fi... Um, so this is about 2002, 2003? Yeah, yep. and, I, and I relapsed, and because they always told me, you know, you can't... Um, you're never going to clean up unless you stop playing in the band and I didn't believe it I thought I can do it I can do it I can do it and then I realized I can't so the yeah. band was an enabler for you or yeah, the, the was, atmosphere of the band was yeah it was go going on the road just everything about it is, is a bad place if you're trying to yeah. trying to get straight yeah yeah I mean bad hours bad food no sleep and yeah. no available drugs no available structure alcohol. I remember feeling like an enabler at some points because he would be in such a bad state that I knew if he had a couple of drinks he would be in a better state to play a show and even just to get along with you know yeah. like there's a certain level of not sobriety. There was darkness. a weird yeah that yeah, you know darkness. Either you're yeah. too down on heroin or you're too up on something else. So like I'm finding the medium, yeah. like you could sort of figure out where that cocktail mixture would be perfect. Yeah, we always tried. And to it was it like, out. you know, it wasn't a good situation, but you know. So the band breaks up when? Two thousand three. Two thousand three, and that's at your behest because yeah, I had a meeting, and yeah. to their credit. You know, Bernie, and to Bernie Breen, our, our manager, who's an outstanding person, you know, they just said, yeah, because I said, I'm going to die. And they, they said, we it's said, true. And yeah. But this was our lives. This is how we made our living. This was everything. And for us all to walk away was brutal and it was difficult because it's easier to just keep going. And everyone got it, and it was brutal. It was, you know, I had no... I had to go get a job cutting down trees and, you know, watching my hand as I put wood in the wood chipper, you know? And I'm I'm beside some kid who, you know what, I want to play in a rock and roll band, and I'm just so... I can't make eye contact with anybody. I'm just so oddly depressed and beat. And to, you know, and we all had to go through that struggle. Then you really have to find out who you are, and you either come back or you're vaguely beaten and 
when we did come back and to this day like again with this new record that is us at our best ever you know <laughs> and that's what I, I hoped for and I wanted yeah. for all of us how did you clean up I had a lot of support my wife my family my wife is the Midori is the prime mover in all of it because she never and like these guys and this is why I go back to the people behind the scenes there are people like Tim and Trent and my wife who and Steve Carr who never gave up and Bernie my manager and I had given up because I thought I can't do it I'm done but Midori just said you know just try this one more rehab and I'd gone to rehabs and I'd gone to detoxes and one day I went and I was so beaten and you know I've had uh there were some people in the music business who had cleaned up and were helpful. Um, uh, I don't want to mention their names because I don't know if I, I should at this point, but they were just very helpful. But a lot of it was that, uh, you know, it's like the Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000 hours of rehab. And yeah, and, but I, um, you come to that point where you can't believe your own bull and really to answer the question is if you have the capacity to be honest you can change and I didn't have that compact com I, I, I just wasn't capable of it until everything else was taken away the band everything it's like okay I can start from scratch and my wife was willing to stand by me if I made an honest attempt to change and it was that love and support that made me think I can do this and got me going. I don't really love the whole talk about being so bloated and shit and, <laughs> and you know, but I just don't because I just think we I didn't did I, I, really I didn't articulate it. How the pain is what makes you that crazy. It's like Elvis or Jim Morrison. It was, you know, my next step was not living. And so I can't articulate that. So I find sometimes when yeah, when you used to be like that, it was so horrific. But on top of that, the part that I forgot just to give you a little detail, was not only was I felt like that and looked like that and had to deal with that, but when we started the hope and dreams and the beauty of Nirvana and this rock thing and into the 90s, and then we had Smile and Wave and it was about the songs and this was a little, and then all of a sudden we're f***ing struggling and we can't find the gear and I'm f***ed up and the f***ing Spice Girls and the Backstreet Boys and all this great music and fades into the background and all that's on TV are the and like and you're and I'm like Elvis I'm on I'm trying to go to rehabs I'm eating ice cream I weigh 250 pounds and I'm watching the watching the Backstreet Boys, watching the Backstreet Boys <laughs> and it's like what can happen <laughs> and I have no control because I'm so out of control my world is hell it's like I feel terrible I look terrible the TV is fucking music is bullshit Right. Kurt Cobain's dead and all the bands I like they're sucking and this is the future of rock and roll and I'm like fuck and so that anger and angst was always there and oh we could outlive them <laughs> and then come back and kill them <laughs> it's a long plan that's what happened here's a track from the Oracle of Hi-Fi this is reframed every single failure Reframed every single failure from the Headstones' The Oracle of Hi-Fi album, the last record before the breakup. The band might have been done, but the stories kept coming. More in a sec. 
This is part two of an In Their Own Words interview with the Headstones. Now, to recap, we're in about 2003. The band is, and there's no other word for it, in shambles, and Hugh Dillon is in rough shape. If things weren't going to change, someone was going to die. Here's what happened. So the band disappears from sight. Yeah. The next place, the next time I see you, Mm -hmm. you've lost your hair. Yeah. You've lost a ton of weight. Yeah. And all of a sudden you're on television acting. Well, I can tell you the ton of weight was, um, we've skipped over a big thing, that trying to get clean and sober. I tried everything. So I tried drugs. And so I'd gone to a clinic where they they cut a hole in your arm. They put in a drug called naltrexone so you can no longer shoot heroin. And so you're doing that and you're taking antabuse so you can't drink. And so it makes you bloated. And then you're eating on top of it because there's nothing like So I'd eat ice cream and sugar. And, and then people would look at me like the message I was getting was you looked a lot better when you were shooting heroin (laughs) so it was a real humbling experience because so I had gotten used to being judged for those things and then just so crazily unhealthy that when I did stop everything and what the trick was for me is to get rid of all of the drugs including the medical drugs that the doctors prescribe and that was a key because once I got rid of that and you know the rest of it's once I understood how to stay away and um, exercise and start to enjoy my life so I had a thing called anhedonia so which means you can't experience joy so take away no drugs you're just eating you, it was. It was. Uh, you were either. Go- I was either going to die, or m- you know, my parents were. I'm Irish. I'm 100% Irish. My parents were. My family came from farmer stock, so I could. I for whatever reason, I had something in my genes that survived, and so with this inability to feel joy with all this other medical drugs that they're sewing into my skin under the you know uh, and taking these other things with and the the point there is with no therapy so they're just saying here take all this stuff everything's going to be great but i still had no real owner's manual because the only thing i understood was i loved i liked smoking cigarettes the bare minimum is smoking cigarettes and drinking beer you know? So, uh, tackling the symptoms, but not getting to the root cause. Bingo. And then I had some great therapists. Like, in high school, I had a bunch of teachers, but I had two or three who were champions. And in my world, and Tim and Trent, to me, are champions. You find people who can see past your bull and talk honestly. You know, And if you have that in any degree, from a teacher to a friend to your, your soulmate... And I got lucky because after two or three uh, therapists, I found a couple who were spectacular. I mean, uh, there was one, I'd gone to one rehab that um, this guy was great. He was just great. I thought he was a little odd, but but he seemed, he knew my number. He was going, dude, you need to stay for an extra two weeks. And I was thinking, you're a son of a bitch. If I could, he turned out to be great because those two weeks got me where I realized I can't fake it, I gotta stay here, I gotta be honest. The funny thing is, is this guy was arrested in the parking lot of the rehab 
for um, robbing banks. You know, the cops, the SWAT guy, you know. So you don't know where your so, angels are going to come so your from. Your therapist <laughs> is a convicted bank robber. Yeah. <laughs> but you don't know where they're going to come from. He was somebody who helped me. And then I had some great people. And then I had... Uh, you know, uh, addiction recovery counseling, a dude named Hamish White up on Young Street who just had been through the ringer himself, who knew my number. And he was just so, he was like non judgmental. He's going, cool, you can do whatever you want. It's your choice. But he'd kind of look at, look at what you've done and look at where you've been and look at where you are now and look at what you could do. You know, just a lot of a really. <laughs> thoughtful people who cared and and I was out of the music business and I was not yet I had not yet kind of re-entered into any of the entertainment so to your point by the time you saw me on TV in Flashpoint or whatever you did it was Flashpoint yeah I had gotten a few months clean and sober and I had done a movie called Down to the Bone with Vera Farmiga that got to Sundance so it was that first year after the Headstones I'd been uh, chopping wood, trying to make ends meet. I got a voiceover gig, and I got this job. Oh, speaking of voiceover gigs, you and I have competed for the same accounts a couple of times. Oh, wow, <laughs> funny. Yeah. And every single time, I've lost. Well, you shouldn't have. Because <laughs> I listen to your show, and I think you're one of the authentic... Uh, people who honestly understand music. Well, thank you. And so many of the times, but I, I would like channels. that GM account. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, that's that's Hugh. What about Tim and Trent? So you go through a period where you clean up, you get into acting. What are you guys doing? We're like, yeah, just living our lives. Uh, I was bartending for a while and doing. You always have been an artist. He's always painted. Doing, he's yeah, he's just he's shy, so he doesn't <laughs> say anything. And Tim's yeah. been in the recording business since since. I didn't right away. Right away, I didn't know what I was going to do, and so I tried a whole bunch of... I have a bunch of stories about going for job interviews of things I'm not qualified for, <laughs> and then getting the job and then quitting after a day. Mm -hmm. Just like when I... Same thing when I was in high school, is the whole reason I became a musician was to avoid this. Yes. And then when I couldn't be a musician, in the, as it turned out, in the Headstones, I'm like, oh, no, I got to go back. It's over. And then... But luckily, I got into writing... I got into writing music for film and TV and... And you got a song right now, or a whole thing on Netflix right and, now. Yeah, yeah. I scored a film called Giants of Africa, which is out on Netflix now, which is cool. And I, I kind of made it work in that world a little bit, and uh, then just kind of kept doing that. That part of it always kept my toe in being being a musician, but never f f tried to play in a band after that. Never was never really interested. In no, it. Once you, oh, you played in some band. Once for a while. You, yeah, but I wasn't interested. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Total disinterest. Yes. Because once you've, I mean, there's there's a thing, I, because I went to Berkeley, you know, I went to school with all these musicians that want to be professional musicians and stuff like that, and I still know some of them, but being in a band that writes its own music and does its own albums and goes out and does that, once you've done that, you mm -hmm. can't, it's very hard to go back to being like a, a working musician that just plays Playing someone else's music, music yeah. Let's pull out another song from the Headstones catalog. This is from Nichols for Your Nightmares. It's Blonde and Blue. To his everlasting credit, Hugh Dillon did clean up. He did get clean and sober. But more than that, he leapt into a very successful acting career starting with one of the greatest rock and roll movies of all time, Hardcore Logo. Call it a Canadian version of Spinal Tap if you want, but that's selling it short. 
It tells the story of a once famous punk band called Hardcore Logo, fronted by Joe Dick. That's Hughes' role. It also featured a guitarist named Billy Talent. And yes, that's where the name came from. The rest of the band included a schizophrenic bass player and a drummer named Pipe Fitter. The film follows their reunion and the dark things that happen. Shocking ending, too. Fantastic film. If you've never seen it, get on that. Here's Hugh again. And then there's, how many movies have you done? I forget. I mean, I, I always just, as soon as you ask me that, I blank out, but I always go to Hardcore Logo because that was, a wow. again, the champions, Bruce McDonald and, and Callum, they didn't judge. They just corralled my energy and my talent. And, and so, Hardcore Logo scared me. You and Hardcore Logo scared me. I was clean me. and sober for that. First thing I ever did, that was my first experience with sobriety. I, didn't, I couldn't handle it as soon as it was done. I went back right back to doing what I was doing. But I, I made a pledge to those two guys, Callum and Bruce, that I'll stay clean and sober and we'll nail this. And they were so good to me. They taught me camera angles. They taught me how to learn my dialogue. They, they, um, that was the school of filmmaking. So when I did graduate to working with Americans who didn't know me at all, and I got the, I auditioned and all of a sudden I'm working with Vera and I'm in New York and we're shooting and I know no one and I don't have the comfort of having my band with me. I, 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 you rely on the people who Let's get into something from that movie. This is the fictionalized band fronted by Hugh. Hardcore logo with who the hell you think you are. Hardcore Logo, the band from the 1996 movie featuring the headstones Hugh Dillon as the doom singer Joe Dick. Here's more from Hugh about his acting career. But it was those things. So I was clean and sober and I went when anything I did was I have to believe in it 100%. I can't phone it in. I can't fake it. And that's what helped me get clean and sober. Follow it. Follow your instinct. And... Um, and then I got on, I did the Sundance thing and that got me, you know, Vera said, you know, um, you can act, you need to go to LA, you need to get out of Canada and Toronto, you've been there too long, people know you as that, that's never going to help you. And that was six months into sobriety. And so I moved That's a to, pretty scary proposition. It was, but how it worked for me was I was scared and I had to learn the streets of Los Angeles, I had to learn all of this thing, all of these things, but it got me out of my head thinking about heroin, 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 <laughs> rock and roll, heroin, heroin, Trent's a dick. <laughs> and, uh, and that's really what saved me because, you know, to this day, uh, you know, I'm, I've got a show in, that I'm working on with Taylor Sheridan. I met Taylor Sheridan. I, you know, Vera got me to L.A. It's like I'm, I'm, I did Wind River with Taylor, you know, and Taylor loved rock and roll. And so it allowed me um, to grow. And that's what I needed to do. I needed to get out of, uh, you know, hanging around the same old streets. So you've, you've been in Flashpoint. How many years did that last? Five years. Five years. Then syndication. Man, yeah. So that, was, that was like winning the, and that worldwide. So no kidding. Again, I'm in Singapore, mm -hmm. and I'm flipping through the channels, and oh, there's the Property Brothers. Oh, there's that other guy from some real estate show. Oh, there's Hugh and Flashpoint. Yeah, yeah. I'd get, I'd get calls from Cord Downey when they'd be flying. Goes, I saw you on the plane. It was a great show. So things start to look up, at least for Hugh. Lots of acting gigs. Dance Me Outside, the Trailer Park Boys movie, Assault on Precinct 13, TV shows like Durham County, Degrassi, The Next Generation, Continuum, the reboot of Twin Peaks, The Expanse, and of course, Flashpoint. 
And that's just a partial list. So, would the headstones ever live again? Well, they would, but in order for that to happen, someone would have to die. That part of the story is next. This is the second half of an in-their-own-words sit-down with the headstones. The band has been back together for a while now, but the reason that happened in the first place was very sad. One of their friends had to die. Let's, in a very concise way, explain the circumstances of the reunion. The reunion was this. I had, you know, everyone knew Randy Kwan. Randy was in my typing class. Yeah, he let, Randy let me stay at his house for free for three months when I didn't have any money and had nowhere to go. First bass player pushed me to be the Sid Vicious to his Malcolm McLaren. <laughs> yeah. Funny, yeah. a genius in many ways. Yeah. Uh, yeah, super generous. Yeah, super generous. And then we'd lost touch. I'd cleaned up. He'd moved to Vancouver and he called me one day I was just I was on set in Flashpoint I think what's he want and, and he calls up and said I've got cancer and I have a two year old kid can we talk and then I flew to Vancouver to see him and uh, he had old pictures of the band and you know he wasn't it's 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 when when you've got a friend who's dying of cancer and you realize you can't talk about tomorrow or the next day you've got to always talk about in the moment or the past mm -hmm. and you know it's what he wants to do and he knows I'll do anything for him or get him anything he needs and he saw how far the band had gone to yeah. the point where we broken up yeah and then after the years of you you know going on to becoming an actor and stuff and he's dying now so he's like you should appreciate that thing that you know we all created yeah and you should yeah. maybe you should try and get back with those guys and yeah. do it again. Well, yeah. Basically, you're stupid if you don't. Yeah, <laughs> appreciate, <laughs> appreciate this amazing thing you've created. Well, talk, talk about a moment of clarity. It was a moment exactly. of clarity, right. and it was and it was a way for me to call these guys and not talk about who's to blame or fault or anything. It was about Randy, and which made all of our egos go away. And mm -hmm. yeah, and we hadn't really been in. T I didn't. Th I don't think I talked to you for like four or five years. Yeah. Tim and I kept in touch because yeah. we were friends before the band. We were friends before the band, too. Losers. But yeah. You're stupid losers. We're having lots of fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was like the best time of our yeah. lives. Yeah. Like, yeah. Remember that? Yeah. But we actually, we were at dinner like the summer before we got together, and we were and it came up. We were at like, losers at the restaurant. We're going, losers. <laughs> Can you believe how much we are such losers? No. Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Hughes saying, sucks. You're saying, do you think the band will ever get back together? And, oh, I'll think about it. Yeah, no, I'll think it's no way. It's not going to happen. I go, unless, I said, unless you... Gets calls every single one of us to get back together. Right. And then, like, what, and two that, months later? And <laughs> that's, that's what, what I happened. did. Yeah. What and I, did. I remember I had, I had called you in the New Year's before, New Year's Day before that. And because I, I, I knew you were around and I knew you were clean and sober, and I just finished the book, A Million Little Pieces. Mm -hmm. And I was talking about you to know, my, my wife, Tina, and she goes, You should call him. I'm like, Oh, I haven't talked to you for years. I mean, I don't know. Cause just call him up. So I called you and we had a good conversation. We always have had great conversations. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I talked yeah. to you with Durham County before Flashpoint. We always yeah. have. Yeah. And also, really, when it came, when I first quit and I said, I'm going to die, Tim was the first one who went, yeah, I can't. I can't have that on my... Because there was a conversation about... And it's my own fault where, you know, I got to quit, I'm going to die, but maybe I could do it one more tour. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. And Tim was saying, no, I couldn't have you die on that tour and I couldn't have that on my conscience. So he yeah, had a lot of empathy. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. Like, there's a, there's no, you a, are a selfish little pig. <laughs> like, <there's> a, <laughs> we had a dark little moment. I don't know. If, like, 
this like that time you were shooting up all, all the time oh, yeah, and there was right. kind of like a weird balance you too. get no used to it there's right. kind of a weird balance when someone's on heroin they're not crazy yeah, yeah. you have just, to remember that it was it was crazy and yeah. loud all the time before that and then yeah. suddenly it was quiet so Trent and everyone oh, everything right. seems okay yeah, it's it's like, right. man, he's not he's not breaking shit. he's not so I find him in the hotel I had to go to sound check and I find him in the room and he's shooting up and he's like not doing it right <laughs> since I'm so wasted I yeah, can't yeah. Find it's like it. the needle's falling out of his arm you're gonna you're gonna kill yourself man yeah. so I I helped him I helped yeah. him because he's I, I knew he was gonna figure out a way to do it I'm not going to cure his addiction right yes. this second. So I helped him shoot up. I, I plunged it into his thing and right. did the whole thing. And right. I remember that being like a weird moment of like, that just felt really wrong. It's really <laughs> wrong, but that but, could have easily saved me because yeah. that's when you OD because you yeah. can't figure it out and you're just trying to put as much in there to, to quell the sickness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, Randy, the conversation with Randy right. provides this moment of clarity. You get together for a benefit for him? We played at the Sound Academy, which was like, you know, 2,500 people. We hadn't yeah. played in eight years or whatever. Yeah. Did a benefit. Made some money for his son, Hunter. And, and Randy was just... It was just the greatest thing for all of us to be able to give something back to this dude who gave so much to us. And also, you know, to see those last emails f- from him to me were just, uh, you know heartbreaking you know and because it's all about his child who he's not going to be there to see and like if we can just do anything to help with that kid's education and he got me to be his godfather and you know whatever I can do and so that gig became it was just it went off and yeah. out of that we had a we, because we spend time together we write songs so all those rehearsals we came with uh, been this way for years which we're going this is a great song and you know I had to ask my wife, is it all right if I swear this much in this song? <laughs> and she said it fits in that one, and fair enough. So the Love and Fury is the comeback. Yes. Yeah. And it was because of Randy, and it was because of that song, and then yeah. Trent, instinctively I'm able to shut my mouth and my mind off and just hear the music, and with these guys I'm able to do that. And I heard his guitar playing for um, Neverland. Neverland, and I went, what's that? that's a song let's write that and then I heard this thing we are in the studio and I heard this thing that's now called Far Away From Here mm. and I was just mm-hmm. drawn to it I had the lyric and the cu- I was just on it and also I think that's what got Tim and Trent to be able to trust me and my drive and my direction because they're going it didn't take three years I got it in like 20 minutes let's hear that song Far Away From Here this is from that reunion record 2013's Love and Fury The Headstones with Far Away From Here from the 2013 reunion album Love and Fury. And that reunion has stuck. So this leads to Little Army. Which is our one of our greatest achievements as a band and as songwriters. Why? Well, right out of the gate, I heard his riff for Devils on Fire, and I went, whatever the f*** that is, I want to <laughs> yeah. be a part of. Yeah. And by that time, we had Chris Osti co-producing with us, and he produced some solo stuff. I brought him. He um, he was on Love and Fury, too. And that was the other thing. These guys are going, well, who's this guy? And I'm going, he's a really decent, egoless dude who understands how to make uh, our kind of music. 
and then they instantly took to him and he was all of those things and he can take your best qualities and make it he can perfect it and um little army became all the things little army was the the um the blueprint for people skills mm-hmm. it totally like, feels like part one and yeah uh, people skills is part two yeah we recorded both at bath bathhouse mm-hmm. in kingston outside of kingston and as gord yeah. was passing away too so we had i had a lot of issues to deal with and i had a lot of things i want to do but in that i had a lot of gratitude and little army what was i think uh, you know i was so grateful for our fans i was grateful for the band it doesn't last long. It lasts about 40 seconds. You can see it. <laughs> and, and, and then right back to f*** this. <laughs> yeah. But it is in there. And uh, and that album was... I just I just loved those songs. I loved them. I'd have little uh, MP3s or whatever I'd be able to listen to in the car as we built them so I could start to see where the flaws are or where I don't like that. Let's change it. And that isn't good enough. And it's and then it got to be perfection. And I look at, you know, Tim, he's been in the, you know, his ability to disassemble a song and pick out the problems that I can't articulate because he's a musician and I'm a lyricist and a singer. You know, I don't have the same skill set. We're great. And then Trent's just got a natural talent. But he's like a painter. You've got to... Because he can play it any different way depending on how he feels if he's not paying attention he plays a different way so I'd be focused on him that no that that and it's like frustrating for them what 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 and you've got to put it on tape it's like for example this solo he did on Dimes and Pennies which is one of my favorite solos these I'm a rock and roll fan these guys are my favorite musicians and I'd be in the room with because I'm now producing and they're like first of all they just don't buy that I'm producing but yeah, yeah. my anger will make let them him, let them out yeah <laughs> well but, but it's the anger which makes them okay okay and then it's when I pick out what they've done and can now go to Chris play it back play him back the other one do you see that and it's because I can hear it but I can't articulate it yeah. and so now I can say exactly that little thing that is magic There's the headstones from 2017 and the Little Army record, which, as we've already discussed, led into the People Skills album from 2019. I want to play something a little different to finish off. Throughout these last two programs, we've learned about the long relationship between the headstones and the tragically hip. Here is a recording of Hugh and the headstones singing with the surviving members of the hip at a gig in Kingston. The headstones and the hip. Pretty cool, no? From all the subsequent conversations I've had with the headstones, we have not seen the last of them. They plan to be around for a long time yet, touring and recording. And at some point, you know, somebody's going to have to write a book. There are just so many other stories that haven't been told. Podcasts of this program and hundreds of others are available through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that offers on-demand audio. They're all free and waiting for you to binge away. My website is always available for you. It's a journal of musical things.com. It's updated every day. There's the daily newsletter that goes with it so you can keep up to date. 
I'm also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And if you ever have any ideas for this program, drop me a line through alan at alancross.ca and we can talk about it. Thanks to the Headstones for making this program possible. Thanks to Adam with help with the interview. And all other technical production is the domain of Rob Johnston. We'll talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Podcasts.